Hello, this is Paul Sachs, Editor-in-Chief of Open Form Infectious Diseases, and this is the OFID podcast. Remember, that's OFID and not OFID. And today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Emily Oster, Professor of Economics at Brown University. While her academic work focuses on health economics and statistical methods, she's also well-known as someone who communicates clearly about risk to us non-economists, focusing on assessing risks associated with pregnancy and parenting. She's the author of Expecting Better About Pregnancy and Crib Sheet Covering Early Childhood, and her latest work is The Family Firm, to be published this August, which tackles the challenges of the early school years. Dr. Oster has also been a frequent voice of reason in our current pandemic times, in particular on the issue of school opening and childhood safety, which is definitely one reason she's appearing on this Infectious Diseases podcast. Emily, welcome. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you end up as an academic economist and choose to focus on your particular areas of expertise? I should say to start that my parents are both academic economists. So sometimes people will ask, you know, what, how did it occur to you to have that job? And the answer was, you know, everyone I know had that job. Uh, <laughs> but I got really interested in college in doing economics. I actually thought that I would do science. I thought I would study infectious diseases. Um, and then having experienced some uh, wet lab work with fruit flies, I <laughs> moved in a different direction um, and joined what my parents refer to as the family business. But I have always really liked the tools of economics and the ability to use data and decision making to try to answer sort of big-ish questions and some of the flexibility that is provided by the field or that I've tried to create in the field. So. I became an economist, and now I'm secretly trying to do things about diseases again, so I'm kind of back to back to college. <laughs> well, I mean, you, you know that a lot of people listening to this are going to be ID specialists, and you've covered infections repeatedly in your risk calculation writings. So let's start with some typical parenting questions and pregnancy questions. What are your takes on things like childhood vaccines, that's an easy one, or tougher ones like dietary restrictions for pregnant women or tick bites? So in all of these spaces, I think that the thing that I try to bring to this is some combination of helping people understand the data and helping them understand the why behind some of the things we're telling them and then helping them to sort of make a decision. So if we take something like childhood vaccines, I am in favor of childhood vaccines. I think we should be vaccinating everybody. But when I sat down to write about it for an audience where perhaps people were more skeptical and not kind of as bought in ex ante as I was, I think we sometimes make a little bit of a mistake uh, of sort of just telling people this is what we think you should do. Like, trust us, we're experts. Vaccines mm-hmm. are good. As yeah. opposed to meeting people a little bit more where they are and saying, hey, let me explain to you why I think that and why you know I'm confident that vaccines are good and what does the data really say. Giving people ownership, giving them the information so they feel like they're making an informed decision, that's a lot of what I try to mm-hmm. do. So you're right, childhood vaccines are a relatively easy one. When we get into things like dietary restrictions in pregnancy, reasonable people disagree in terms of, what to do and what to say about something like, should I have a turkey sandwich or even, you know, can you have a glass of wine? And a lot of what I do in the books is I say, let me go through the evidence for and against this, or why might you be concerned about it? How important are those concerns? I spend a lot of time on questions like, how do you know that's causal? You're showing me some correlation, 
But there's a lot of other differences between moms who did one thing and did another thing. Can we dig into finding the pieces of data that are most convincing and using those to make our decisions? And ultimately, trying to come out on the other end and having people say, I feel confident in the choice. Hmm. That's a huge piece of what I'm trying to deliver in this space of my writing is to have people feel not necessarily that they made the right choice because in so many of these places you're never going to know ex post whether it was in fact right but just that I made the choice in the right way I'm confident in the way that I made the choice and that's a confidence that we kind of can deliver with data so you must spend a lot of time reading medical papers how does that feel I enjoy good medical paper. I do spend a lot of time reading medical papers. You know, they're a lot shorter than papers in economics. Uh, In economics, we tend to be like 100, 150 pages. Like we really dig into a lot of appendix tables. A lot of my early academic work interfaces with medicine also. And that's been helpful in some of this later work because, you know, you do get the feel of, okay, like what am I looking for and what are the, what are the methods and what are, even what do people call this stuff, right? The jargon is so different in every field. Yeah. So, you know, we recently wrote about one of your kids getting a tick bite and then you went down a pathway that all of us who live in New England sometimes have to go down, especially us ID doctors answering people's questions. How did you handle that one? So, you know, first panic. I mean, it's, you know, and I wrote about this, like, you know, our nanny, like, sent a text, like, Finn, Finn is my six-year-old, you know, Finn has a tick on his face. And then he's like, how did I not see that? I thought it was dirt. I thought it was a dirt at breakfast. And, but then, you know, I tried to sort of step back and say, okay, well, what, like, what are the options? So I went into up to date, which you're probably also spend time in and try to sort of figure out, okay, you know, what are the decision nodes here? What kind of tick is it? The area we live in, Lyme disease is the big issue. So, you know, can I rule it out? Is it, is it the right kind of tick for that? Unfortunately, it is the right kind of tick for that. And so, you know, then kind of what's the next step? How do I think about the choice in this case between some kind of prophylaxis doxycycline versus, you know, not? I wrote a post about this, but before that, when this first happened, I wrote my husband this long email that was like, you know, here are the decision nodes and here is the probability that we could be in this thing and, and in this thing. And, you know, and, and ultimately in the end, we're really weighing, you know, there's a small probability of this and a small probability of this and, and what is the right choice, but it's never easy to exactly make the choice. So, so don't you think it's interesting though, that, you know, this, this is a very common scenario here in New England. And yet, as you wrote, you panicked and you're no dummy, you're a smart person. So what is it about these risks that makes it so hard for us to really view them in an emotion-free way and come to the right decisions? I I assume that you ended up doing what you do with most children, which is observe them and see whether anything happens. Yeah, this is what we did. We tried to figure out how long the tick had been on him and it had been less than 36 hours. And so we sort of agreed that we would just watch them. But, you know, I think a lot about this partly because of our current moment, but I think when it comes to our kids, in particular, when we are aware of a risk, when a risk becomes salient to us, it is very difficult for us to approach it dispassionately. And I think a piece of that is the fear associated with bad stuff happening with your kids. And a piece of it is that our understanding of probabilities, which is already pretty bad, even people who work on statistics all the time, but like my ability to comprehend the difference between one in 100 and one in 1,000 in some meaningful way is poor. When we make some risk really salient, it's very easy to overstate it and to be just walking around thinking about ticks all the time. And ticks become like, it's like always ticks. I mean, now every day, like when we go, my husband's like, 
did you do a tick check? Did you do a tick check? Yeah. I mean, of course you should do a tick check every day, but it's also like most days you don't have a tick, but yet it's in your head. Yeah, everybody uses this. You have a much greater risk of getting into a car accident than you do getting sick from a tick bite on a six-year-old kid who you can observe. Uh, and you don't panic knowing that, for example, he might have driven somewhere with your nanny. It's a very funny part of human nature, isn't it? It is. I think we have a lot of evidence around how people process these these probabilities. And I think a piece of it is for these risks that we're taking all the time, if they're small, we kind of code them as zero. You know it's risky to go in a car, but you don't think about it. And you don't think about cars as a risky activity until someone points it out. And even then, it's it's sort of in the background as opposed to unusual risks or things that don't come up every moment where then it's in your head and somehow you process it as yeah. high risk. There's something interesting in the psychology. There, there is. I've always did the hand-waving explanation, said it's something in our evolution that we evolved to feel fear bugs and creepy things, whereas we did not evolve to fear cars. It seems very plausible. It's speculation, yeah. So I won't ask you about bats because that's actually probably one that we ID doctors deal with the most irrational uh, situation of all, which is that a bat flying around in a person's house carries a, a non-zero risk of transmitting rabies, which is a near always 100% fatal infection. And so in the United States, it's recommended that people get rabies vaccinations if a bat flies around their house. Well, the country north of us, Canada, has those same bats and that same risk of rabies, and they don't do anything, not at all, uh, because the risk has been calculated and it's so shockingly low. I will tell you, I, one time at a vacation house, we found a dead bat and my husband brought it in and had it tested and it had rabies. And then yes. we all had to get the rabies shots. But you said you had to get rabies shots. But do you know what your risk of getting rabies was? Well, I don't know. The bat was dead and it had rabies. Yes. So the bat has to bite you and has to transmit rabies to you. And they said it might have bitten me and I might not have known. And, and each year in the United States, uh, we, we know how many rabies cases there are because there are so few. And it's typically between zero and five. Many years it's zero. So, so if, if bats were transmitting rabies a lot in this country, we, we would certainly know about it. And the Canadians just basically said, forget those stupid Americans. We're not wasting our resources on this. And they have had no epidemic of rabies in their country. I'm not going to anyway. tell my family that. Okay. So now let's uh, talk about the infectious disease du jour, which has actually been of the year, which is COVID-19. And I have to say, everybody has that moment where they realize something big was coming. And I wonder if you, as someone who's written so extensively on this topic, can share with us when that moment was for you and your family. I think it was when they told us our kids were not coming back to school after spring break. I had been aware of this because I started writing about it a little bit and thinking about it. And I remember that sort of week leading up to the kids' spring break, which was like sort of the second half of March, where just every day something else very extreme you know the university was first we were gonna we were gonna go home early for spring break then we were gonna go home at the same time we were gonna go we weren't gonna come back and then one day the university was like everybody leave by tomorrow and the kids school was like okay that's it like we're sending home these bags of stuff and we're not coming back after spring break at least you know and that of course at that point they said okay it's like gonna be two weeks or whatever idea that they had um and i think that was the moment where you felt like okay this is not just like elbow bumps instead of shaking hands, this is going to be a bigger deal. And it, since that time, a lot has changed. 
And nobody was able to predict exactly what was going to happen, despite lots of people attempting. What are some of the most surprising things that have changed from your perspective as an economist and as a, as a parent? I was surprised at how compliant, this is a weird thing to say, because I know for many ID docs, people were not compliant, but I actually was surprised at how compliant you know, society has been with lockdowns. And if you had told me a year ago, you know, there's going to be a lot of kids who aren't going to see inside of the school building for 18 months and parents will still just kind of do it. Uh, I would have told you that that was not plausible. And what about the parenting part? You are providing a voice of advice to parents everywhere. And this is not an easy time to be a parent. Yeah, I think it has not been an easy time to be a parent. I think that it has driven home for a lot of people, the loss of control. I wrote something in the winter about control, which I think as a parent, you always wish you had more than you do, but it's never quite as salient as it's been this year when it just feels like every week, like somebody else is telling you the things that can and cannot happen in a way that removes autonomy that we are used to having. And that's been true for everybody, not just for parents, but I think it's been more true for parents in some ways than than for others, and it's it's been hugely challenging. Yeah, I absolutely agree. So you actually wrote a wonderful piece recently on the risk of COVID-19 for families that include, obviously, vaccinated adults now, we're so lucky, but un- unvaccinated kids, and it's going to be that way for a while. And you're trying to make sense of the CDC's mask guidelines. And I think we'd all agree it's kind of a mess right now. So how would you advise people with children to proceed the summer with things like family vacations and summer camps? And today I was asked by a local newspaper, what about fun parks? So what are you saying to them? The thing that people have been saying lately that I think is exactly correct and aligns with the way I think about this is that we are moving into a place where this is becoming more of an individual choice where reasonable people may differ in the choices that they make. You know, up until pretty recently, up until all high-risk people had access to vaccines, all adults have access to vaccines, I think we were in a space where there was a reasonable view that we need to restrict the behavior of people who can't yet be vaccinated because we're trying to protect older people, we're trying to protect, you know, people who have not had a chance to get access to vaccines. But we are now in a place where if you want to get a vaccine, you can, and we're pushing out, we're pushing out, and pushing out. And as a result, case rates are going down. The public health piece of this, it's not that it's gone, but it's, it's much smaller now than some of these private issues. And that means, as someone with unvaccinated kids, there will be parents who say, even though I, maybe I understand that COVID is low risk for kids, it, maybe it's not low risk for my particular kid, or maybe I am just not comfortable taking that kind of risk with my kid at all. I'm worried about this, or people have different preferences. And for that group, they're probably not going to want to do stuff with their kids. But I think we also need to recognize there's going to be another group that says, you know, my kids are low risk. And even though they are unvaccinated, I am going to go see my extended family or send my kids to camp or send them to sleep boy camp or take them on a vacation. And that transition is going to be challenging Mm. because of the kind of judgments that we have all gotten used to making about each other. And it's going to be hard, I mean, for people to recognize that other parents could make a different choice from you and still be right. Yeah, it does elicit lots of judgments. And one thing, people aren't shy about expressing their opinions about other people's parenting. No, and and (laughs) one of the things that's happened in, in the pandemic at the moment is if you think about outdoor masking 
right? So where I live now, they just removed the outdoor mask mandate. And I was at the playground this weekend with one of my kids. And it is, we are definitely in a place now where the adults are about 70% unmasked at the playground because this is a high vaccination area. Like we're all kind of vaccinated. And, but the kids are all wearing masks. They are. And they are, which I don't think is necessary for preventing COVID. But it, but it's also the case that they don't seem to care. Mm. My son, like he wears a mask eight hours a day at school. That's just what he does. Yeah. He doesn't care that I'm not wearing it, but we're entering a weird space. My wife's a pediatrician, as I've told you, and she said that the compliance with mask wearing among her patients has been great. You know, kids have been doing great and, and they don't seem to care. This is their, their new normal. And it is exactly the opposite of what everyone predicted. <laughs> yeah, the people who don't like the mask are adults. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, there are some situations with kids which are harder. My younger is, is six, but I definitely feel for the people who are like trying to get a mask on their two and a half year old. I mean, yeah, that seems true. both unnecessary and also just much more difficult and challenging. And the other piece of that mask guidance that I find very upsetting in some ways is that people have gotten the impression that if your kid is under two and can't wear a mask, then you literally cannot have them out of the house around other people, which I don't think is what the CDC means. I think what they mean is for kids under two, don't worry about it. It's fine to be out without a mask, but that's been communicated in an odd way. I'm a proud resident of Brookline, Massachusetts, which has been in the news recently as delaying its removal of the outdoor mask mandate. It's really interesting. I have written and strongly advocate removal of outdoor mask mandates for vaccinated people because it makes sense. And there's still a lot of people who are just not quite sure until that risk is zero, until the risk is lower than your risk of getting rabies from a bat in your house. They, they want you to wear a mask outside. So I am going to turn now to something that was very interesting for me, which was a piece you wrote in The Atlantic making the comparison between kids and vaccinated adults. And, and what you sort of said was that kids were intrinsically very low risk of having severe disease and vaccinated adults are very low risk of having severe disease. And I thought the analogy was, was reasonable on several fronts, but it turned out to be quite controversial and it really brought forth the wrath of uh, social media. So what was the experience like for you and how did you navigate it? So that was, for me, a very unpleasant experience. And just to sort of frame a little bit, I had what I thought was a very good idea, which is often how things start with me, which is, you know, to try to help people understand the size of the risk for kids. So we had spent a lot of time telling people kids are low risk for serious disease. They're very unlikely to die. And we arrived at a point where people were thinking, okay, vaccination really protects you against these things. And so I had this thought that, you know, well, maybe I can frame it in that language. And so people would kind of understand the size of the reductions in risk for kids and then point out that, of course, in terms of getting infected at all, the risks are not as reduced. And so that's where kind of herd immunity comes in. And I think part of what happened was whenever you write something and you put it out in the public, it can get very oversimplified. And in this particular case, the kind of headline, which was like unvaccinated kids are like a vaccinated grandma, people took to mean that I was making that analogy across all parts of the thing. And since nobody ever reads the whole piece, then it's like, and so, you know, I got into a position where um, some people were very upset and felt like this was damaging in some way. And that is a position I have been in before. For example, in the fall, I wrote something called Schools Aren't Super Spreaders about schools and which many of the same people uh, complained a, a lot. And in that case, I really felt that what I basically stood 100% behind 
what I had written and the headline and the way it was presented. And I felt that that was exactly correct. I still feel that that was, you know, the right thing to do at the time. Here, when I reflected on after having been yelled at for, for a week or so, like four days, it felt like a week, uh, <laughs> I recognized that basically the way that we had presented the piece, particularly the sort of way it was headlined and some of the pull quotes were not things that I really could stand behind that I, if I sort of had it to do again, reflecting on the, on the criticism, I would not have allowed that to be used. And so I wrote an apology and, you know, then tried to kind of move on. Um, but an apology to try to explain, look, I stand behind some of the points. The basic idea here is just a math conversion, but how we say things matters also. I actually thought you handled it brilliantly. Thanks, Paul. It made me feel embarrassed about the way that people respond to novel ideas. You know, I was like embarrassed for the public, you know, because some of the people who challenged you are infectious disease types, microbiologists, uh, public health people, and they did take an oversimplified view of it, looking solely at the title probably. But but nonetheless, uh, the way you handled it was great. And moving on is really seems to be the right approach to these controversies. Yeah, I think you can dig in or you can say a thing and you can move on. And I, I try to be more uh, of the second. Yes, yes. I think digging in was a mistake because a lot of the people end up commenting are anonymous uh, and they seem to like to stir the flames. Yes, so, Twitter is a hard place. So we're looking at emergency use authorization of the COVID-19 vaccines for first adolescents and then potentially after that children. What are your thoughts about, about this? So I think when we get particularly to younger kids, I think much less so for adolescents, but I think when we get to particularly younger kids, the calculus is going to change a lot. We're going to be talking about this in the fall where hopefully we expect case rates to be much lower. And I think we need to recognize that the risk benefit calculation for younger kids from an individual standpoint is very different than it is for older people. They are less likely to get seriously ill. The The vaccine will protect them against getting COVID, but it isn't doing much to protect them against getting very seriously ill. And so I think we're going to have to think about that risk benefit a little differently. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there is this public health potential advantage, especially in the 12 to 15 year olds, because they have such a high incidence of disease. We'll see. I mean, I, I would definitely favor vaccinating, just to give you my opinion, people 12 to 15. And, and once you get down into the younger ages, I, I'm not sure myself. I think we're going to have to see what the case, case numbers are like. Do you have any thoughts about how we could possibly message this in a nuanced way to the public? So I think with the 12 to 15 continually messaging now, like, look, this is actually a group that's getting infected. And, you know, if your kid's out playing youth sports out in the world, this is a way to protect them. And, you know, then they won't be quarantined. There's like a lot of stuff we can say now for that group, which I totally agree with you we should be doing. As we move to the fall with the littler kids, I actually think I would prefer not to talk about it as much right now, because I think part of what happens is people start having this hypothetical argument, you know, like, well, what's well, you can't vaccinate your kid right now. It feels like trying to decide now what we're going to want to do in this hypothetical four months from now future seems difficult. Yeah, probably premature. And I think reasonable people will differ. Yeah, excellent. So uh, I have to ask you, any predictions about the coming school year? I know that predictions are... Uh, you know, go there with caution, but still, what do you think it's going to be like for kids going to school in the fall of 2021? So I think for more or less any place that has been open already to a greater or lesser extent, we will see uh, opening 
pretty normally in the fall. The thing that I am unsure about is if we're going to end up with masks in school. Clearly some places no, probably some places yes. I find that hard to predict and I think it will depend a little bit what happens over the summer with kids. The sort of situations I'm more worried about is the places that have not managed to open at all. I think that it may be difficult for them to open kind of normally in the fall having not dipped their toe in at all. One of the aspects of the school discussions are that there are a bunch of places in America that are fully open, have been fully open the whole time. And where, for example, in Texas, I think the current discussion is around not will we require masks in school in the fall. There's no chance of that. But will the state allow districts to require Mm. masks? I think that they probably will not. Yeah, the the diversity of of our country is quite remarkable, isn't it? Yes, it is quite remarkable. And particularly around schools, I think the decentralization proved to be a bit of a curse on this dimension this year. Oh, yes, and in many ways, but but nothing like a pandemic to bring out differences between states and and even even within states. So it's it's really remarkable. Um, I'm now going to kind of make it very personal and talk about infectious disease as a specialty, despite the fact that we are the smartest doctors. um, (laughs) We are among the lowest paid. And that has to do with the fact that people get paid in the American healthcare system for volume of patients seen and the number of procedures or scans or surgeries they do. And we don't do any procedures or scans or surgeries, and the patients we see are complex, so we can't do a high volume of cases. Not only that, but we have to train extra time to become an infectious disease specialist. So sometimes we end up in this paradoxical position where we're paid less than people who are trained less than we are. So those to me sound like economic issues. I mean, they do. And I think that part of what the kind of free market version answer to this would be is that if you're underpaid, then no one should want that job. And then there won't be as many of you. And then you should get paid more as a result of being in scarcer supply. Yes, yes. I have to tell you that that we as a uh, specialty are not so good at negotiating with sharply drawn lines saying we won't do this unless you pay us. So, for example, when this pandemic occurred, we all kind of chipped in and worked 24-7 because that's what we do. And, and no one had figured out a way to pay infectious disease doctors to manage a pandemic, and they still haven't figured it out. So No, and I think part of what, you know, we have these ideas about people are paid their marginal product and people like, you know, but it's, of course, the, the actual way compensation like that works is more complicated. And, you know, part of it is you're probably taking a pay cut relative to what you could make partly because you like your job. Presumably you find this interesting and there are parts of it that you enjoy and maybe, you know, I mean, it's always, I always make this argument about English professors. Like, you know, English professors make less money than you for sure. And part of that is you're taking a pay cut for the privilege of getting to do this thing that, that you love. Yes, you're absolutely right. And one of the things that remains in this specialty, since I've been whining about it for the last five minutes, is that we do like what we do. We find it very interesting. Um, we find it meaningful also, and you can't really put a price on that. But on the other hand, when you're trying to encourage young people to go into the field and they have a lot of medical school debt, it's sometimes very difficult when they look at the economics. Yeah. Same with primary care or something like that. Yeah, although it's funny, we're in the rare position of envying the primary care space salary. That's That's for another day. (laughs) That's for another day. So I have to finish up by just going through a few rapid fire risk assessment issues with you. Okay, Okay, these are going to be, do you do them or not? Will you advise them for your family or not? Okay. Okay. All right, let's start out with eating oysters. 
Yes and yes. Okay, so eating oysters. So you know, from an infectious disease perspective, it's a fairly high risk food. I love oysters. Yeah, so do many ID doctors who eat them. And when you ask ID doctors, whether they eat them or not depends on whether they like them or not. That sounds right. <laughs> it's preferences. It's a very easy one for me because I don't really like them so much. How about um, hot tubs? Not if when I was pregnant. I don't really like hot tubs. So Okay, well, there you go. So, so I'm kind of a no. My kids love them, though. I let yeah. my kids go in. So you let your kids? Yeah. I feel the same way about hot tubs. I actually like them more than oysters, although comparing those two things is a little funny. <laughs> a little tricky. Yeah, but they're not exactly the cleanest uh, bodies of water in the world, and they're definitely linked to infectious outbreaks. Uh, cruises. No. Cruises ah. are a no for me. I don't like boats. But also, I'm afraid of the norovirus. There's nothing I hate more than the norovirus. Like, it's my worst thing as a parent. And I feel like <laughs> when you go on a cruise, there's like a 60% chance. <laughs> it's probably yeah. not true. Yes. So the people who love cruises will defend them to the, you know, the end of time because they just love them so much. And they say there are things you can do to prevent spread. A lot of the Hygiene theater you see with COVID-19 actually works for norovirus, but you're right. People get risky. norovirus on a cruise. Definitely. It's very risky. How about rare or medium rare hamburgers? I will eat a medium rare hamburger or a rare hamburger, but the concession that I make is we don't actually eat very much meat because of the climate stuff. Okay. And so when we eat red meat, it is only like from local, ah, you know, and so okay. it's always very fancy. I have a colleague who was invited to watch over the grill at a neighbor's party, and he cooked all his hamburgers until they were basically just carbon discs. Now and I know who no ID docs in charge of my grill. And that family still refers to those hamburgers as the worst hamburgers <laughs> they've ever had. Uh, but he, he believes, and actually this is one of the ones that my wife believes, that it's too risky to give children in particular mm-hmm. undercooked hamburgers. So. I feel like I would rather give my kids no hamburgers. And just say, you know, that's not a thing we're going to have because it doesn't taste good. It's like that. Okay, good. And then the last one I'll ask you is about street food, in particular when you're traveling. Like you're going to a really fun foreign country and everybody is lining up to get something from a food truck. Yeah, probably yes. But not the day before we go home because it's really (laughs) unpleasant to be sick on the airplane. Okay. Well, Emily, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, I want to say it's been a real pleasure chatting with you about risk and COVID-19 and infectious diseases. And once again, I've been uh, discussing all those things with Dr. Emily Oster, who's a professor of economics at Brown University. And this summer, her book, uh, The Family Firm, will be published, and I encourage you to get it. Thanks very much. Thanks so much.